The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 52. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can reach to the chair uh, in front of you, the, the, the seat back. We have uh, chair Bibles there, and this morning's text is found on page 903. 903, and you can follow along there. Really excited to be um, preaching this message to you. You need to give a, a, a word of thanks or, or appreciation to Pastor Nathan, um, because he's giving up space in this preaching series. To a guest, some of you don't know that that's remarkable, but um, I'm, not a, <laughs> I'm not a pastor here, I'm a member, but I get to preach probably once or twice a year, and uh, whenever it's my turn to preach, I always ask him, and he always says, oh, you know, just do a standalone thing, just do your own thing. He doesn't want to give up space in the series, he wants those all to himself. So to get a message in Mark, I feel like he's really growing as a person. <laughs> you can, so just make sure that you share some appreciation with him, and I'll share a little bit in a moment. I'm breaking one of the rules. He gave me a directive of something not to say, and I'm going to say it to you. So, um, so I'm already like exploiting the, the, the permission. Mark chapter 14. Jesus Christ is the end all be all. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the bright morning star, the blazing sun of righteousness. And yet, you and I are constantly trying to orient the solar system of our lives around some paler sun. In this wretched tension between our glorious Christ and the painted beauties of our idolatry is on full display in this text today. And as we'll even see in a scene that appears to spell Christ's doom, when all is said and done, only his glory will be left standing. Let's read beginning in verse 43. Of Mark 14. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, and immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. And now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him. And they caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you that you have breathed this out by your spirit for your servants. We ask that you would press the, the truths deeply into our hearts, that our affections for your son would be stirred. Uh, for many of us, afresh. For some of us, perhaps even anew, that you would awaken uh, death into life, even this morning, by the good news that is here. Please bless this time we have together, and it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Jesus is, and, and his disciples have eaten the Passover meal. 
They've retired to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is interceding in prayer for them. And as we left off last week, we're now on the narrative downhill slope toward the Mount of Calvary. So Jesus rouses his sleeping friends, and he alerts them that his betrayal and arrest is imminent. And the pace, like most of Mark's gospel, as we've seen, is quick. It's almost breathless. Mark is going at a breakneck pace toward the cross, rushing even more quickly than before. And so each of these episodes, as we go, um, leading up to the crucifixion, is short and, and, and kind of punchy. You can, you can feel the dizzying hurry of it all. And this feeling is captured especially in verses 43 through 52. It's a chaotic scene once things get rolling. And so what I want to do before we just dive into the exposition is, is make a note on the weirdness of verses 51 and 52. Because it just sort of jumps off the page, doesn't it? What is this naked guy doing in this text, right? We're going to come back to it as part of the exposition, but it's worth addressing some of the mystery right now if just to get it out of the way, because I don't want it on your mind as we, as we sort of journey through the really important stuff in the, in the text, right? This part, verses 51 and 52, this little note only occurs in Mark's account of Jesus's arrest. And so it, it, it raises a kind of curiosity about the you know, identification of who this young man is. Is. And so the standard guess, the standard hypothesis, is that it's Mark himself, that you know, somehow putting himself in the action, identifying himself as sort of an um, you know, authorial signature in, in some way to put him there, but also as a way to say, even I deserted Jesus and would put himself in there. Um, we're not sure on that, that it would be Mark. In fact, one of the early church fathers, uh, Papias, said that John Mark wasn't even a disciple in the time of Jesus' earthly Ministry, his discipleship came later, so it's not likely that it's Mark. So the speculation continues to grow. There are some who would say it's just one of the disciples, um, and he's the last one to flee. And the reason why he wouldn't be named is, you know, Peter is not even named um, in this scene as well. We know that, that Peter's the one who cut off Malchus's ear, but he's not named in this um, particular instance. It's just one of the disciples. Sometimes the speculation gets a little more fanciful. Um, so there are those who, um, for instance, think this is the rich young ruler. If you remember the story, we're going to revisit um, the rich young ruler briefly um, soon. But the rich young ruler, if you remember, um, you know, Jesus told him to give up everything. And so some would say, this is him coming back to show Jesus, right? I gave up everything, including my own clothes. I gave up even the, you know, the clothes on my back. Um, and then there's um, some speculation, which I found really interesting. And this is the one I shared this with Nathan on Thursday. And he said, don't preach that. So I'm just going to put it out. You decide. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to be suppressed, and he's not in the room. So there are some who make a connection between the young man here in the linen cloth and the young man in chapter 16 who was seen outside the empty tomb in the bright clothes, and they think it's the same young man. So either a, a young man who has gone from fleeing Jesus to now testifying for Jesus, or perhaps even this is an angelic kind of uh, ministry of some kind, I don't think that's true, by the way, just if you're taking notes, because uh, I'm violating um, the pastor's order. Um, but it's just one of those things that's out there. Here's the bottom line. Nobody knows. We don't know who it is. Even the best scholars, the best commentators have zero idea who this person is. Um, and we probably can't know and won't know until uh, um, we get to heaven, right? But what is curious about this little scene, uh, despite the fact that it, it, it feeds into just the the tension and the fright of the moment is, if I can make just another kind of 
rabbit trail note about it, is it has all the uh, markings of an eyewitness account. Uh, tradition tells us that Mark's gospel is, uh, in many respects, if not in all respects, um, the eyewitness uh, accounting of Peter, that he's recounting all the things that he witnessed firsthand to Mark. Mark is the one writing the gospel, but it's based on Peter's account mostly. Um, and so it, it almost sounds like Peter could be saying, there was this, this naked guy there, man. Like, we didn't know who he was, but it's so weird. And Mark was like, well, that seems notable. I should put that in there, right? Um, it's too weird to have been invented, right? It's, it, it's such a strange thing that somebody would just make it up. So it has all of the earmarks of somebody seeing the scene or having been there, not being able to put all the names with the faces, but just going, man, it was a wild scene and this thing happened. And so it actually lends itself to the historicity of Mark's gospel and to the gospels in general, to the truthfulness of them that we would have this strange incident there. And incidentally, just all the, all the things you see, all the dirtbag things the disciples do in here, right? The people who would say that the gospels are, you know, um, you know hoaxes or conspiracies on, 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 you know, on the part of the early church or whatever, it makes no sense. They would take all this stuff out. Peter would be saying, don't put that thing in there about me cutting the ear off, man. That's embarrassing, right? They would be covering all this stuff, but they obviously are being transparent and honest. And so it has all the marks of an eyewitness account. But it is strange. And what the two verses at the end um, do mainly, however, is just enhance the sense of heightened tension there in the scene, the action in the moment, where everyone, everyone is running at the red line. Everyone is overwhelmed with fear or passion or both except Jesus. Jesus stands out in this scene not simply because he is the center of the action, but by contrast of all that's swirling around him. You know, there was a time in a boat where everybody was freaking out and Jesus was sleeping. And then later, as the true storm is approaching, Jesus in the garden is the only one awake while everybody else is sleeping. And now at this moment, when the disciples have been roused and everyone is freaking out, Jesus alone is standing above them all. He truly is the worthy King of Kings. So I want us to look at three examples of Christ's supreme worthiness from this text today. Because this little important scene shows us the stark contrast of human sinfulness with Christ's holiness. So often our desires, our passions, our compromises, our sacrifices don't have Jesus at the center of them as supremely worthy. So the first contrast we'll look at is in Judas's betrayal, which is a sobering reminder of our first truth. Jesus is worthy of the greatest desire. Jesus is worthy of the greatest desire. And Judas's priorities aren't subtle. He's practically been telegraphing this moment. Jesus predicted it, but Judas, as far as we know, has spent no time demurring or denying, right? Unlike with Peter, who was like, I would never deny you, right? There's no parallel of Judas saying, I would never do that. Judas is trying to play it cool. But we know that his desire is about money and about control. Back in verse 11 of this chapter, we're told the promise of money set up Judas's desire to betray his Lord. And that fatal trajectory culminates here 
in verse 43. While he was still speaking, that is, Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob, swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they took hold of him and arrested him. The kiss and the call, the greeting of rabbi, is the customary sign of a disciple to his master. But it's, it's only a ruse, isn't it? It's a falsely expressed desire. It's all a lie. And Judas does this, we are told, for just 30 pieces of silver, which Pastor Nathan reminded us in a previous sermon really wasn't all that much money. I mean, it's not pennies, but it's certainly not nearly enough, you would think, to trade in for allegiance to the true king of Israel. But when your desires are disordered, you will see worth in unworthy places. When your desires are disordered, you will hold cheap things as costly, and costly things as cheap. And I wonder if Jesus is even communicating this truth in sort of a subtle, ironic way, because knowing Judas is a greedy betrayer right out of the gate, he puts Judas in charge of the money. John chapter 12, verse 6 tells us Judas is in charge of the disciples' finances. Why would Jesus allow that? I think perhaps to show us that even Jesus holds money loosely. Perhaps also to show us that we ought to hold money loosely. And while Jesus is not endorsing greed, of course, he has orchestrated this entire thing as Lord of the universe to bring to the surface how even our greatest earthly treasures are a mere pittance compared to his own all-surpassing glory. There are so many biblical scenes that point to that truth. The parables of the man who sold everything that he had in order to get the field where the treasure was buried is one example. Another is the man who sold everything he had in order to get that one priceless pearl. But the most heartbreaking, I think, is probably um, the ones where a man doesn't see the surpassing worth of Christ. Four chapters ago, Mark chapter 10, Jesus meets the man that we know as the rich young ruler. Sell all you have, Jesus tells him. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. Jesus wants him to trade his great treasure for the greater treasure of Christ himself. But Mark 10, tells us the young man went away dismayed and grieving. His desire was disordered. In the very next scene, Jesus tells his disciples, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God? Which is such a startling pronouncement, isn't it? And we should apply it well. You might not have a lot of money, but your wealth is somewhere. You have a treasure. There is something that you value more than anything else in the world. Do you treasure it more than Jesus? The desires of Judas were not ordered around Jesus. Ultimately, money was his God. And money may not be your God, but the point still applies to us. Our desires reveal our true object of worship. What are you tempted to pursue? What do you crave? What do you long for more than the preciousness of your Savior? 
He alone is the antidote to idolatrous desire because only he can satisfy. Only he can deliver on all of his promises. Only he can give you joy. Jesus alone is worthy of your greatest desire. Secondly, and very closely related to the first point, Jesus is worthy of the greatest passion. Jesus is worthy of the greatest passion. Judas has clearly betrayed Jesus at this point. He no longer identifies as one of Christ's followers. At this very minute, at least, in, in you know, these seconds, the other disciples might still identify as followers, which explains what happens next. Verse 47, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. We know from the account in John's gospel that the servant's name is Malchus. And the impulsive swordsman is, who else could it be? Peter. The top of the list. Who do you think? One of the guys cut off somebody's ear. It's got to be Peter. If it's not Peter, I'll be totally shocked. It's Peter. And we know that Peter's a passionate guy. Whenever I impersonate Peter, I do an Italian accent. If you're Italian, I do apologize. But there's just something about it. You know, forget about it. I'll cut his ear off. Just let me at him. Right? It's just something... It's Peter. I mean, he's a character. He speaks when he shouldn't speak. He's constantly jockeying for position. He's jumping out of boats. He even tries to rebuke Jesus at times. Jesus, you got this one all wrong. Let me tell you that. It's Peter. It's just who he is. And here, his passion gets the best of him yet again. His passion is evidently about worldly notions of the kingdom. We can assume, not just from this, but from other instances as well, that Peter, like some of the other disciples perhaps, they're still envisioning what the Messiah is, is supposed to do all wrong. In their mind, and, and, and for many of the Jews' mind, when the Messiah comes, he comes with swords on stallions, and he violently overthrows the Roman oppressors. He, he, he casts them out. We reclaim the land through brute force. So Peter all along might be thinking, yeah, Jesus is saying all this stuff about being kind and being good and being loving and everything, but when it really comes time, we're going to throw down. And Peter thinks this is the time. These guys are coming with swords. It, that must mean it's on. This is when we're actually going to install Jesus as the one true king, and we have to do it through warfare. But we know Jesus doesn't come like that, not with swords and stallions. He comes on a donkey with palm branches. And all along, he's subverting their idea of what the messianic kingdom ought to look like. And so it seems like Peter is doing a good thing, a sincere thing. He's, de he's defending his friend. Wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you pull your sword to defend your friend? But it's really his own agenda at work here, his own ambition, his own misunderstanding, and his own misusing of the notion of the kingdom of God. He's looking for the violent revolution. In Matthew's account, we even see that Jesus rebukes Peter for this very notion, saying after this flash of heated passion, put your sword away. Anybody who lives by the sword... It's going to have to die by the sword. Don't you know that? And then Jesus picks up that ear and puts it back on Malchus's head and heals him. That's what the kingdom looks like. That's what it looks like. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, my kingdom does not come by worldly passions. It doesn't come by violent overthrow of your earthly enemies. 
It actually comes by laying down our lives. Doing worldly things in Jesus' name is not the same as treasuring Jesus. In fact, one of the most frightening passages of Scripture to me, it, 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 I don't know about you, but to me this is the most frightening passage in all of Scripture. It's found in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name, Lord? And I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. There are a lot of people who claim to speak for God today. Who claim to do things in Jesus' name. Every day you can find on social media professing Christians who are cursing their enemies, reviling their brothers and sisters, hating each other, all in the name of Jesus. Is it possible that our chopping off of ears in Jesus' name is really no different than a betrayer's kiss? It's the appearance of affection, it's the appearance of passion, but it really has self at the center, selfish ambition, worldly notions of the kingdom, the mistaking of our passion for Christ's passion. If you remember, when the children of Israel made that golden calf in the wilderness, and it took their jewelry, they melted it down, they made this golden calf, and they bowed down to worship the thing, they didn't say, now we're worshiping a different God. They ascribed their worship of the golden calf to Yahweh. They said, this is how we worship God now, by bowing down to this idol. What would it look like to see Jesus as worthy of our greatest passion? It would look, I think, exactly as he has said. Through self-crucifixion, it would look like loving our enemies, blessing those who persecute us being willing to be counted among the rubbish of the world if it means aligning with the way of Christ. It means, in a way, handing over our very lives as a blank check to the Lord saying, do what you want with this. And in an echo of Christ's own words, we would say, not my will, but your will be done. It means repenting of our ways and going his no matter the cost. And seeing him as so, so worthy of our greatest passion. But in the end, when all of these would-be followers of Jesus realize that their own ways are crumbling, the crisis proves devastating to them. As it will to us. You want to see true Christianity? Put it under hardship. Put it under persecution. That's when you see real faith rise to the surface. And these men, at least in this moment, do not see fellowship of Jesus as worth the incredible cost. He hasn't sold them a bill of goods. He told them this is what it would take. If anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And in that day, take up your cross did not mean put up with inconveniences like it does today. It meant death. They knew what the cross meant. They could see them all outside the city with rotting corpses hanging on them. 
He hasn't lied to them. He was totally honest. Take up your cross. But when it comes time to do it, he is left to the cross alone. Verse 50 is haunting. They all deserted him. They all deserted him and ran away. In fact, I think this is really the major takeaway of that mysterious verses 51 and 52. Not who the young man was, really, but what he was willing to do to get away from Jesus. See, far more so than today, to be seen naked at this time is to embrace shame. We might consider it shameful today. More often, we just consider it immodest, perhaps. In this day, this culture, it is absolute shame. It is a shameful thing to be caught naked. And this young man was willing to embrace shame rather than be caught aligning with Christ. He was willing to give up his dignity, the very clothes on his back to save his own skin. His fear was greater than his faith. And perhaps even as a foreshadow of this moment, Amos chapter 2, verse 16, prophesies, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. In that moment, there are more precious things to all of them than Jesus. He was not worthy to them of their greatest passion, which serves to set up our third and final point. Jesus is worthy of the greatest sacrifice. Jesus is worthy of the greatest sacrifice. Only Jesus is worthy of the greatest sacrifice. Jesus has called his disciples to lay down their lives for his sake. And it's worth looking into the future a little bit to be reminded that uh, tradition tells us, not the Bible, but tradition, so it could be wrong, that Peter, the impetuous idolater in this scene and the ardent denier of Jesus in the next one, goes on after his restoration to great apostolic ministry and even to his own death on a cross, which he requested, again, this is tradition, He requested that his crucifixion be executed upside down because he did not even consider himself worthy of Christ's death to be even killed the same way Christ was killed. Peter found the grace to find Christ worthy of the greatest sacrifice. And Jesus is certainly worthy of our sacrifice, of our greatest sacrifice. But ours is not the greatest The Apostle Peter's upside-down crucifixion, as terrifying and terrible as that was, was not the greatest sacrifice. Christ's is. And ultimately, Christ had to go to the cross because he alone is worthy. He alone is sinless. He alone could make sufficient atonement for idolaters like Peter and idolaters like you and me. Only Jesus is worthy of the greatest sacrifice, Only Jesus is worthy enough for the cross. And ultimately, the reason Jesus made the greatest sacrifice is not because we are worthy of it, but because he is. Because his glory is the greatest reality in all of existence. Because his name is above every name. Because his holiness prevails over all. Because the rebellion of sinners cannot and will not have the last word. 
Verse 49 is in fact an exclamation of this truth. The scriptures will be fulfilled. Jesus is not a victim here except that he wills himself to be. He is the puppet master of this scene. He tells Peter in one of the parallel accounts, don't you think if I wanted legions of angels to show up at this very moment and wipe them all out, I couldn't do it? I could do it like that. Have you forgotten who I am? No, despite, despite that he's being betrayed by Judas, misunderstood by Peter, utterly abandoned by all his followers, arrested and later tried, tortured, and executed by his enemies, Jesus is in charge. The scriptures will be fulfilled. They cannot thwart his plans. You cannot avert his designs. And what the conspirators meant for evil, God means for good, even for their good, even for their good. At the cross, he wins the ultimate victory because he alone is worthy. And we will be singing for all eternity, according to Revelation, not we are worthy, but worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is he to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. And while this makes so much of God and so little of us, this is still really good news for us. In fact, it couldn't be good news for us if it weren't true. You and I are not worthy of that sacrifice. We are not worthy of that cross. If even the most religious person, the most moral person that we could find died on that cross for us, we would still be dead in our sins because even our best is still a sinner. Only Jesus could make the atoning sacrifice for us because only Jesus is a sinless Savior. Only he is a spotless sacrifice. Only Jesus was good enough to make the sacrifice that satisfies the just wrath of God. And it's only in Jesus then that we find the worthiness to enter into the glorious presence of that holy God. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. We're all running away. All of us, born sinners, have deserted God and run away. In the garden, at the cross, out of the tomb, at the right hand of the Father, Christ stands alone. He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy of the greatest sacrifice. And yet, and yet, with this same great sacrifice, he welcomes sinners like us back into his worthiness. He's willing to be treated like us, criminals, verse 48, that we criminals could be treated like him. You know, this isn't the first time the holiness of God ran people out of a garden. In this garden of Gethsemane, we have this young man naked fleeing the garden. Back in the garden of Eden, fresh from the fall, having chosen some other treasure over their Lord, channeling their desires and their passions elsewhere, Adam and Eve are naked and ashamed and vulnerable. 
and they deserve the wrath of a holy God. And they're exiled from Eden, cast out, sent fleeing from the garden. But just as the Lord covered Adam and Eve with the skin of sacrifices, he can cover ours with the greater sacrifice of himself. He alone is worthy. John Flavel says, Christ is so in love with holiness that at the price of his blood, he will buy it for us. And I don't know if this young man naked is the same young man of Mark 16, 5. I strongly suspect it's not. The man who appears at the empty tomb in dazzling white. It's probably not him. But the theological connection is still worth reflecting on. Our garment of shame becomes Christ's who bears our shame for us, and Christ's garment of white becomes ours, who did nothing to earn it. Our shame has been covered by the righteousness of Christ. Desire, passion, sacrifice, Christ is worthy of it all. He is better than money. He's better than politics. He's better than romance. He's better than all of our ambitions and our temptations. He's better than our sin. Jesus stands above it all and has died in our place that we might die to it all and live in him. And this is why Jesus came. To die on the cross and rise again from the grave to save sinners. So that if you and I will repent of our sin and put our trust in him. And in his worth alone, we will be saved forever. So that together, by his spirit, we might be able to say, as the old hymn goes, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, you are so sweet to have given us this revelation of your word. What a great kindness the Bible is that you would tell us everything we need to know to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The truths that awaken our hearts to esteem you above all. I pray in this very moment that your Holy Spirit would be using these words that he breathed out to bring some from darkness into light, to bring every precious saint in this room into a greater strength of their faith, a greater awareness of your goodness, and of the glory of your Son, Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray these things, the name above all names. Amen.